Welcome to the Southern Naturalist Podcast, where we explore the interconnections of nature by providing the listeners, you, an immersive experience of what it feels like to be on the trail with us. My name is M.A. Thomas, and this is my dad, Bob Thomas. Hi. We're both professors at Loyola University, New Orleans, and naturalists and fascinated by nature and all she has to offer. We want to excite you about venturing into nature and enjoying the out of doors. Folks in the South enjoy their experiences year-round, and encounters with plants and animals vary with the seasons. We have many stories to share with you. This podcast is brought to you in part by the Loyola University Center for Environmental Communication. Dive deeper into the content we cover by visiting our website at lucec.loyno.edu. Welcome to the Southern Naturalist Podcast. Today, we're gonna be talking about hurricanes, something we are all too familiar with in the South. We're gonna go over some basics and share what a naturalist observes before and after this weather event. And later in the podcast, we're gonna have a special guest, Mark Schlefstein, who is one of the most award-winning environmental journalists in the country who specializes in that in our area. Great. and that's going to be really interesting, and, and um, we're excited to, mm-hmm. to have him on the show. Um, Dad, I want to talk to you just quickly about, um, for our listeners, how they can find details about what we're going to talk about today, because you have all of your lectures written out for one of the classes you've taught for a long time called mm-hmm. the Mississippi River Delta. And um, so how can people find out more about these lectures that you have on your website? Yeah, it's a, it's a good overview of meteorology in general along the coast because meteorology drives a lot of the ecology of coastal Louisiana. So uh, so over the years, I've kind of expanded that. But um, but it's sort of, and it's a guide for you to get in deeper. Yeah. So um, uh, it, all you have to do is to Google uh, meteorology, coastal Louisiana, and it should pop right up. Great. Okay. We'll also have it linked in the show notes so that our listeners can find it pretty easily. Um, let's start with the name, Dad. What is a hurricane and maybe some other names for it? Basically, we call them hurricanes here. Um, if, you, um, uh, if you go to Asia, they call them typhoons, exactly the same weather phenomenon. They're, typhoons are typically a little bit stronger than hurricanes, but still, typically the same thing. And then, uh, but, but then their regional names... Uh, uh, like in, in uh, Australia, they always have to have something quirky, so they call them willy-willies. <laughs> willy-willies. And, uh, and in the Philippines, they call them baguios. But, uh, but, but also, in, in meteorology, in the general term, they're cyclones. Matter of fact, when, back in the 50s, when I, when I lived in a tornado zone in, in Alabama, uh, uh, we called tornadoes cyclones. And uh, uh, because a, a tornado is works the same way a hurricane does. It's just more compact and a heck of a lot stronger usually. Yeah. Uh, same thing with a water spout. It's sort okay. of the same phenomenon. But what, what they all share in common is that they have uh, uh, the circulation is counterclockwise. It's a low pressure zone. So let's talk about the gamut here that we get in New Orleans because everybody listening has been through a cyclone. Yeah. And somebody might say, no, 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 I've never been in a hurricane. No, you've been in a cyclone because a rainstorm that comes through your neighborhood is a cyclone. Mm, okay. It's absolutely the same general structure and format. 
But as they elevate, they change names to depression and tropical storms and then hurricanes at different levels. And the same thing with tornadoes. They're all the same thing. They're just different in their structure. They're more compact and more dangerous. So uh, so in some parts of the world, like in, especially in India and places like that, they, they just call them cyclones. But uh, don't be confused by those terms. Uh, hurricanes are cyclones. Okay. They're low-pressure zones. They're big storms. They're the same storms we get when it rains here, but they're a heck of a lot bigger. And they're, uh, the, the tropical cyclone then is what matures in the Atlantic or the eastern Pacific Ocean? And that's, that's, so it's just associated, it's a semantics thing, right? So we just yeah. call it a hurricane when it's North America. Exactly. No, okay. they're all tropical cyclones. Interesting. What happens is that when you have a low-pressure zone like that, um, it helps build the storm. The way the storm builds is that it's turning counterclockwise, and, when, and, uh, and it's low-pressure, so that means that air is rising in the middle of it. It has con- what we call convective chimneys, if they're really strong storms. And it's rising up to very, very high levels. And it's, as, the, as it picks up uh, warmth from the water that it's crossing, that goes up. And as it goes up, it releases a lot of energy. And then that makes it, the winds blow stronger. And then, of course, the winds that we experience on the surface are simply where that convective chimney is pulling all that air up. So it's, it's got to suck air in from somewhere. Yeah. So as it comes in, that's the storm that we actually feel. But if you're inside the storm and you, you're near the eye wall where, the, where the, the winds are the strongest, then that's a different phenomenon, but it's built on all of that mechanism. And that's why we get them in the Gulf um, area because we have warm waters in the summer through the early fall. And so that's why you never have tropical cyclones on the West Coast, right? Because it's too cold to sustain yeah, that kind of storm. Yeah, further north, right. Yeah. You actually do have them on the West Coast of Mexico. Okay. And, and so there, you know, we live in an area with two hurricane centers. One of them is the Gulf of Mexico and the, and the Atlantic Coast. They kind of operate together depending on how they're shifted. But storms do form off of Mexico in the Pacific. And they typically run up the coast of Mexico until they get to northern Mexico, and then they turn left and go out, heading right usually toward Hawaii. Yeah, so and then they fizzle out somewhere in that area or just past Hawaii. Hawaii does get hurricanes occasionally. But they're different. They have different naming systems, they're, but they're exactly the same storm and forming at about the same latitude. Cool. So hurricanes come in all shapes and sizes, and some are only a few miles across, while others can be as large as 100 miles across. So tell us about that and, and why that is the case. Something we always wonder about is why do these things come in different shapes and sizes and strengths and all of these things. And it's mainly because they're very, very, very complex weather systems. And it's not just a wind blowing. It's, uh, it has to do with uh, the temperature of the water that's beneath them, the amount of energy that they're getting, and that drives the power of the storm. Uh, it depends on uh, currents on the surface of the water. It depends on uh, temperature differences across the surface of the water. You know, all water is not exactly the same temperature at the surface. And if a storm is building and it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and it runs into one of those, uh, we call them wind shears, it just cuts off the head 
of the hurricane and stops it or slows it down. So there are all these factors that, that are totally invisible to us that uh, uh, are interesting if you're interested in science and, and meteorology. Yeah. Well, and another thing is that there's a comparison of a buzzsaw shape of a hurricane, and that's the spiraling bands of those winds mm-hmm. and the rain that radiate out from the center, really. Yeah. And um, so the eyewall is the typically the greatest danger of a mm-hmm. hurricane, and so the closer to the eyewall, the faster the winds are due to that angular momentum like you were just talking about. And uh, the great comparison that you can make with that is how when you have a figure skater and they spin faster when they pull their arms in. And that's exactly what happens with a hurricane. So you've got a tight group of very strong thunderstorms in the center and you've got that most severe wind there. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about the eye of a hurricane. Well, when you think of an eye of a hurricane, you think of a place where the wind is not blowing. Like, you know, we a couple of years ago, we had a storm come right across New Orleans, and the eye came right over New Orleans, and the wind was blowing very strong, uh, and uh, everybody was hunkered down in their homes that hadn't left, and then all of a sudden, whew, the winds were gone. And what do you do when you do that? Everybody goes outside. Mm-hmm. And so we're standing out in the street in our neighborhood, and people are coming out of houses everywhere and looking around and with strange Just looks an, on their face. An eerie feeling, huh? But everybody, you know, being New Orleanians, they all understood that that must be the eye of the storm. Yeah. And, uh, and it was just silent and the wind and very relaxing. But when you see that, you got to know that you're coming, that eye is coming across yeah. you and you're going to hit those eye wall storm uh, winds again so you got to be very very careful a lot of times people are, are hurt because they don't know that that's going to happen and it hits you fast the eye wall 15 miles wide with 150 mile per hour winds it's basically a 15 mile wide f3 tornado and then you can actually see this when the um, the weather stations are showing you the hurricane from a satellite image yes you can see that eye I mean it's pretty obvious in there mm-hmm. and so the tighter more compact eye means a stronger storm and one that is less compact and more open with asymmetrical aspects on the center of it means that it's a less organized therefore less strong um, less intense storm when you see somebody showing you the track of a hurricane about where it went they're not looking at usually the outside bands or anything like that they're just looking at the they're looking at the eye and they draw a line where it came across the surface of the water and on the land and that's called hurricane track so let's, let's add some really interesting physics here to the discussion, and that is what's known as the Coriolis effect. Yeah, the Coriolis effect is something that uh, affects basically any, any water or wind or anything else moving across the surface of the Earth. All right, first of all, everybody knows that the Earth is spinning. And, uh, and the, the way it spins, it causes... Uh, let's take the Mississippi River as an example. Water comes flowing out of Southwest Pass and the other passes in, in the Mississippi. And as it goes into the Gulf of Mexico, it tends to turn to the right as it exits. In other words, it goes west coming out. And you can see this. You, you come in in an airplane to New Orleans, uh, especially during the spring when the water is high, and you'll be flying across clear Gulf water, and then all of a sudden it gets really kind of a 
pale murky. pale murky yeah. color because that's the clays and and other sediments that are in the water that are flowing out of that river. So you so it's visual. What you see when you fly across that is that as it enters, it doesn't just flow into the Gulf, it flows to the west. And the reason for that is because the earth is spinning underneath that water. So it makes the water drift to the west. And that's called the Coriolis effect. The same thing is happening in air, movement of air. And so one of the things that builds the twisting and the, uh, the development of these easterly waves and other things that cause hurricanes is because uh, the earth is moving underneath them and it causes them to start some twisting motion. And we just call those waves or easterly waves. But, and most of them fizzle, but some of them get started yeah. and they turn into hurricanes. And, okay, interesting. So if the earth were not spinning, then the hurricanes wouldn't spin either. And oh, there are millions of things that wouldn't happen if the oh, earth right. wasn't spinning. <laughs> <laughs> interesting. Hang on to your butts. All right, here we go. We're about to go through some of the worst turbulence you could possibly go through. We're punching through the dirty side of Hurricane Florence in the Hurricane Hunter. Well, every, everyone seems fascinated by these hurricane hunters who get into an aircraft and fly into these storms. Tell us a little bit about that and, and how that plays into our understanding of hurricanes. It's extremely important, and everybody that lives in the hurricane zone understands that about every four hours when a hurricane is approaching, there will be an update on the status of the hurricane, how strong it is, what it's, if it's adjusted its path, all these other factors about that storm. And all of that information comes from these hurricane hunters that are run by uh, a, a federal agency, but also the military uh, have hurricane hunters because storms are, are vulnerable times for anybody, and they need to know what's happening out there and how it's going to affect the, uh, the uh, defense, national defense, and and uh, uh, military preparedness. So these planes fly into the storm, and then they fly in a pattern, crisscrossing back and forth and going through the eye a couple of times, flying in the eye, and then penetrating the, the wall at different places and taking readings while they're doing that. Uh, they also drop these incredibly sophisticated uh, little um, uh, instruments that drop down into the storm and take data as they fall, and even on the surface they take more data and relay, relay it back. So it's something that's extremely important to security. So they Human measure, security. Yeah, so they measure things like wind pressure, moisture, temperature. Yes. What, okay, are they taking pictures of the eye wall? Is that how we get the pictures? Uh, no, most of that comes from satellite images. But okay. but if you do see images in there, it's coming out of these planes. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. If you're intrigued, as most people are, about, uh, about these um, hurricane hunters and what it must be like to fly into a storm, uh, uh, one of the, the scariest, <laughs> but I think most illustrative, uh, examples that's ever ever been made public was that there's a, a, a one of the great meteorologists in our country who's a consultant is a, a man named Jeff Masters, and uh, and he was flying into Hurricane Florence that came into uh, South Carolina, and they thought it was a low category storm when they when they flew into it, when they entered the eye they literally they it was rough and tumble and and terrified everybody on the airplane 
and it turns out that it was a, a, a category four, which is is uh, second from the highest. And uh, and then they they were afraid that something was wrong with the plane, that it was damaged, that maybe there was fuel leakage, and um, uh, but they made it out, and uh, and and he put together a uh, a, a YouTube. So if you want to see that, you can either just Google it, uh, or you can uh, look on our uh, our show notes on our show notes, yep. and we'll give you a link to it. It's fascinating. Don't watch it at midnight when you're getting ready to go to sleep <laughs> during hurricane season. Well, um, we also name storms now, but we haven't always done that. Right. So talk a little bit about naming storms. Yeah, we still talk about, in our area, we still talk about the, the hurricane of 1853 and the hurricane of 1895 and things like that. But uh, back in the 50s, we decided that we needed to be able to talk about individual storms and that people could remember them. And the best way to do it was to put names on them. Yeah. And so when they first did it, they put ladies' names. They were always all ladies' names. And, um, and they could be recycled later, 10 years later or something like that. But the rule of thumb is if it's a really horrific storm, they retire the name and yeah. don't ever use it again. And now they alternate between male and female names. Well, yeah, that's, that started in, uh, in 1979. And uh, uh, I remember it very, very well for a couple of reasons. One is the very first male-named hurricane was Hurricane Bob. Hurricane Bob. And it was, uh, it was a, a low category. It came ashore as a Category 1. It formed at the mouth of the Mississippi River. Mm -hmm. I went to bed at about midnight the night before it hit. And I usually watch some news before I go. There was no discussion whatsoever of a hurricane. And I woke up at 7 o'clock to my alarm radio where they said, there's a hurricane at the mouth of the Gulf. Oh, and I sat up straight in my bed and went, what? And, and um, it was Hurricane Bob. It was Hurricane Bob. <laughs> uh, and, Ironic. And so that's one way I remember it. The other way I remember it is that, uh, that uh, uh, we, had, we were pregnant. And, uh, uh, and my wife was probably three weeks away from, from giving birth. And... Um, uh, when the, when the storm came right over Metairie, literally the eye came over Metairie, uh, the pressure changed enough to break her water. And that's a little bit early. Yeah. So she called uh, immediately and they said, yeah, you, you've got to come into the hospital. We've got to, uh, you know, once your water breaks, you've got to be taken care of. But, but you and your other sister were playing ball that day. And so we stopped by on the way for y'all to play your game. And... <laughs> Meanwhile, my wife called her nurse, who said was horrified that she was at a ball game. <laughs> so, um, so then we went in, and uh, so it was a, a male that was born. I did not name him Bob. <laughs> a lot of people listen. It's common that if a baby is born during a hurricane or around a hurricane, that people name them after the hurricane. It's very, very common. Uh, uh, so anyway. Uh, so that made it really important in our family because yeah. it actually drove uh, his his birth early and at that time. My little that brother, Patrick. That's it. Yes. <laughs> Very fun. All 
All right, so this is a, a Southern Naturalist podcast, and so it's, you know, at this point, I want to make the connection of what a naturalist should be looking at, because that's really what a naturalist does. It's they look at nature in different ways. So this episode, we've been talking about hurricanes, and we're going to talk with the next birdie um, on the, the um, this show as well. But let's think about and talk about how a naturalist sees or might see nature prior to a storm, maybe during a storm, and then maybe after a storm, because there's lots of really cool stories out there of um, what, how animals and how plants um, react to these storms. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, there's been a lot of studies on this, and uh, we really have more anecdotal information than we have scientifically based information. But, uh, but if, as a naturalist, you know, what you do, hopefully you'll be looking in your rearview mirror as you leave. Right. <laughs> but uh, but what, what, what happens is that, that animals are very sensitive to changes in the environment. And um, uh, too often we think it's just a bird. But the reality is they're very sensitive. And they can start to sense a change in barometric pressure. And, uh, and they react to it. Some of them hunker down. Uh, as an example, I've had friends who have, have been in the middle of a marsh at a, at a camp where they stayed during a storm. And they were looking out the window. They would see, uh, they could see that there were some egrets hunkered down in the grass, just kind of got as their low heads as they down can get. as low yeah. as they can get. But then every once in a while, one of those birds, I guess, decides, I've got to get out of here. And they jump up in the air the way they do to fly, and then they just go laterally at warp speed, depending wow. on the wind speed. I, I had a friend who was doing the same thing, and he saw uh, a couple of raccoons crawl up a dead tree. And they got up to the top, and they were really clinging to it. And uh, all of a sudden, they lost their grip, and boom, laterally. Wow. They just flew away with, with the the speed of the wind. Well, and the same thing is you can look up and if you see a bird that like a magnificent frigate or something like that, that's a tropical bird that you don't typically find in the southern United mm-hmm. States, you can predict that it got same thing. I mean, it, it caught some of those winds and it got pushed into mm-hmm. our area. And so you know that that's a strong storm that's either coming or is right there. And Yeah. As a matter of fact, I mean, what, what naturalists tend to do is that they, as soon as a storm passes, they get in their cars and drive north to see what they can find north of here that shouldn't be there. Magnificent frigate is easy to identify. They ride the the uh, the, the airwaves, and you can see them from a distance. So that's one of the main ones that people talk about a lot. But all of a sudden, reports start coming in on a listserv. It's L.A. Bird, where people make reports on birds. And there'll be people in Shreveport talking about uh, magnificent frigates that should be not even seen in New Orleans, even though we do occasionally in a storm see them in New Orleans, but they're mostly out in the Gulf of Mexico riding the airwaves. Uh, and then even some of the other birds like Jaegers and and, uh, and that that are typical seabirds will get blown in. Uh, I've heard stories, but I, and I've really tried to find the film on it, but I've heard stories about how a hurricane would come across, say, Cuba. And remember, there's an eye in there where everything is is calm they would come across and blow 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 and then the eye comes across cuba and all the birds launch into the air and then they get caught inside that eye and as it moves in our direction or into the direction of the united states uh the eye is full of tropical birds 
and all of a sudden they start falling out as the as the storm dissipates. And, and falling somebody, out means what? It means they that just they start. They land. They land. Okay. Yeah, and because they've been flying for right. a long time, and and the thing is that they. Um, uh, what's interesting about that to a naturalist is. I want to see these birds. Mm-hmm. I want to see them in the United States. But also, it's it's just an interesting phenomenon that how animals can be moved like this by a storm. They don't intend to do that. They just get caught up in it. Yeah, And and they can return back. They know. I mean, they have those yeah. senses where they can return where they came from. Yeah, birds navigate very well. Very well, yeah. yeah. Actually, there have been some really neat studies. And, and a person who's from, who grew up in central Florida was telling me about uh, a couple of published papers um, and she sent them to me. And what they do is that after a storm, a major storm back in 2017 that came through uh, the Eastern Caribbean, uh, some scientists who are naturalists uh, started thinking about it. when this storm comes through, what does it do to lizards? Lizards that live on trees. Yeah, lizards that I, can't just fly away. They can't, you know, uh, yeah, just... yeah, and they tend to stay on trees. And so they went out and collected lizards. And what they found was they found statistically that the animals that they were able to find had really broad toe pads that have little hole fast mechanisms for holding onto the bark. Mm. And they didn't find very many with small toe pads. But they went back and looked in museum collections, and they found that when people just routinely went out in good weather and collected these, they found that a, a lot of variation in the size of the toe pads. But post-storm... It was all big toe pads. Ah, because all the ones with smaller toe pads would have been blown away, blown away. And, and maybe killed. Okay. And, uh, and so what, what they also did was they did some, uh, some studies in the lab where they put these anole lizards on, like we have brown anoles everywhere in New Orleans. We have them all over Florida, and now they're all over Alabama and Mississippi. But uh, uh, they would put them on a vertical stick, and they'd hold on. And then they would use a, a, a weed blower, a leaf blower, uh, to simulate the wind speed of a hurricane. And they would blow them, and they have pictures of them holding on with their front hands, and their tails and feet are, are out lateral because they're being blown away. But they're able to hold on, and they, that showed them how they actually deal with those winds. Yeah. But, uh, but then now they've done a couple of studies uh, on a whole bunch of islands in the Antilles of a whole bunch of species of these kind of, of uh, animals. And then they went back and correlated that with information on major storms, and they found that there was a positive correlation between islands yes. where the toes are bigger, okay. uh, and there are a lot of storms, and, and then more variation in the toe size. So that's, that's a way that a scientist uses data to prove something that naturalists noted that it, it appeared that there weren't as many lizards when we came back. And now they're doing long-term studies to look at, does it adjust back? Will they adjust back to having variety in, in toe pads and that sort of thing? So that's just sort of an interesting natural history. Okay, thing. and we'll link that in our um, show notes in case anybody Absolutely. wants to read the actual study. They're fun. Yeah, they're really fun. But then... Um, uh, also wanted to talk about the, the impact on, on plants. Obviously, trees get blown down. I remember when Katrina came through out at our Louisiana Nature Center in eastern New Orleans, uh, there were massive uh, destructive forces that blew big hackberry, sugarberry trees down, whereas right across the canal, 
all the trees were still standing, the same species and everything. So we think there were microbursts that came down and hit the nature center and really did a lot of destruction. So those things are real obvious. And when that happens, that impacts animals that live on the trees or in the trees. And it also impacts the amount of light that hits the ground for a long time. It also impacts um, uh, uh, how animals come in and, and uh, break down the trees and fungi grow and all these ecological things are happening post-storm. Um, but we also know that there are, are plants that, uh, well, we have these plants uh, that are called hysteranthus plants, which means that they, they flower before they put leaves on. And the, the most obvious one in, in our area, in most southern cities, is something that we colloquially call Japanese magnolias. There's actually a couple of species, one of them being a hybrid, but tulip trees, some people call them tulip trees, uh, even though there's a native thing that's called tulip. Uh, and, and everybody knows them because in, uh, before the bushes start to, to leaf out and everything, you drive around the city and you see these trees in people's front yards that you've never noticed before, and now they're covered with, with sort of a, a purple to pale patterned flowers that look like tulips. That's yeah. why they're called. And they're beautiful. Locally. They're beautiful. And they all bloom for a few weeks, and then they start to drop the petals, and then the leaves come out. And they go all the way through the summer, into the fall, and then they drop their leaves in winter. And then it all starts again in early spring. Uh, so, But what we noticed was that after fall hurricanes, that these Japanese magnolias would start to flower again. Drop, they, their leaves would get blown away, and they would start to flower. Well, Dan Gill, Dr. Dan Gill, is one of the most well-known horticulturalists in this area, uh, was with the LSU Ag Center. And uh, he explains that they actually, in the fall, these, these plants have actually set their buds for the flowers. They're set. They're just waiting for spring. If a storm comes through and blows the leaves off, then all of a sudden the light and everything hits these things and the buds think, oh, it's spring. So that's the cue for that's the That's the plant. cue. Yeah, they've lost their leaves. Now they get all the energy from the sun and everything and they start to, they start to open up. And so, but, but you know, as nature would do it, it's a little different. They're usually mm -hmm. paler in color and that sort of thing and they don't last as long. But, uh, but that's the way they respond to it. Now, on the other hand, we have one of the most common noted trees in, in, in the south and up the east coast are bald cypress trees. And they drop their little tiny leaflets uh, in the fall and they stay barren all during the winter and then they leaf out again in the spring. Well, when a storm comes through, uh, they often blow all the leaves off of the tree and, um, uh, and then guess what happens? They start leafing out again. The tree responds by thinking, my leaves are gone, let me produce new leaves. So they actually leaf out again. And you can really see this. It's pretty obvious because the new leaves are this bright green, green color, and they change that green as they age and develop. And so I remember distinctly last fall after Ida going out into um, the wetlands around New Orleans, like to Bayou Sauvage, and seeing that bright green, and it was almost a juxtaposition of it. It looks like it's spring, but we know it's fall right, in, right. by looking at the trees. Yep. So those kind of things are, are, are pretty typical. And so naturalists now are sort of attuned to it, 
And so they, they kind of keep their eyes open. And anything weird after a storm uh, gets talked about yeah. a lot. And, and it stimulates a lot of scientists to step forward and, and gather data and, and do a scientific yeah. analysis. I mean, making those observations and then trying to figure out why or how or, yeah. you know, what. Right. Great. All right, so that was fun, talking about hurricanes. We never know how long those discussions are going to happen because we kind of just, you know, whatever's interesting to us or we think that listeners will be interested in and learning about how to connect it with being a naturalist. So um, so anyway, now we get to our guest that's in our studio with us today. And, um, and let's introduce him. And I'm going to let uh, Dad introduce him because he knows him the best. So take it away. You know, it's always fun to be around a person who really, really, really does their job very well and uh, and who doesn't seem to have any ego associated with it, just does the job and just continues to be recognized for it. So Mark is, uh, has won uh, two Pulitzer Prizes, which is ama- he did amazing work, and, uh, and, he's, and he's been a finalist for more. So uh, he's recognized certainly at the national level, at the highest level of, of journalism awarding. Uh, he also, just locally uh, in New Orleans, uh, won the Lifetime Achievement Award in 2011 by the New Orleans Press Club. But other than that, I'll, I'll just name a few. I mean, he, he won uh, uh, the National Communication Award from the National Academy of Sciences. Uh, he won the John B. Oaks Award. He won the Gerald Loebman Award for Distinguished Business and Financial Journalism. Uh, he won the Edward J. M- uh, Meeman Award. And he won the Selden Ring Award, among others. Yeah. I mean, it's just an amazing record of his uh, recognition of the quality of his journalism. So when we say he's the expert, I mean, he really is the expert. He's, Those are his accolades, some of them anyway. He's the expert. Yeah. But he's always my go-to guy for... For facts. So welcome, Mark. Yeah, well, welcome. Appreciate yeah. it. Appreciate it. Glad you're here. So how do you know each other? Oh, wow. Um, the you Nature think? Center. Yeah. It That's, all goes back to the yes, Nature Center. Yes, it goes center. back to the okay. Nature Center. Yeah. Uh, I still remember dragging an intern to the Nature Center for a Nutria cook-off. Oh. And <laughs> the the intern was uh, Corinna Gore. Al Gore's daughter. Oh, really? Okay. Yes. Uh, I do remember that. So, yeah, we go yeah. back a long time. Yeah. Okay. Well, but he's an environmental journalist, and I was the director of a nature center, and and by default, I had to do a lot of discussing on radio and TV and the like about environmental issues. So, Mark was a, a welcomed addition to the sort of communication intelligentsia of New Orleans. Yeah. And has continued to do so for decades, right? I won't right. say since, how many decades. Since 84. There you go. You, so. you told on yourself. Yes, okay. I did. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Dad, you want to jump right in? Yeah, yeah. Well, what? first of all, um, as a person who has to communicate with the general public, uh, the first question that people usually have is, why do we have so many hurricanes here? If you go back to all of the reasons that create tropical events. It's because of our humidity. It's because of our hot waters. It's because of our winds. And then it's because of a low pressure system. Correct. Did I miss anything? Correct. Uh, we have all of those ingredients right here in the Gulf of Mexico. So there's, there's a potential for storms to actually form in the Gulf. There's a potential for storms 
to form coming off of Africa and getting shunted through the Caribbean um, and then and through, then the through this funnel yeah. into the Gulf of Mexico. So th- those are key things. Some, some new things that uh, uh, scientists are learning are uh, some effects that part of them are, are climate change. Uh, and some of them are climate change in ways that we that you wouldn't expect to occur. The temperature issues are that uh, the Gulf of Mexico um, uh, water temperatures are warmer. Um, the Gulf of Mexico also has uh, what's called the Loop Current, which is a batch of warm, deep water from the Gulf Stream that breaks off every year to year and a half. And, loot, and this big chunk of warm water floats around the Gulf of Mexico and often ends up, like it is this year, off of our coast. And that loop current, if you, if you think about a hurricane, if it's moving along at a slow speed, it is pulling up water from underneath, and that water is generally cooler. In the past, it has generally been enough that it will cool it off, and the hurricane will lose power. Okay, when it hits the loop current, though, it's pulling up hot water, and that hot water is 200 yards deep, and it's just continuing to come up. And there's nothing you can do 2,000 yards deep. Actually. It's like adding fuel to and the fire. It is literally turning on the burner, and so that that's where you end up with what um, uh, forecasters call rapid intensification, where uh, a storm will jump several categories. So you've got that going on. The other issue that has um, more recently been, been found is that, um, a, as you may have seen, we've had uh, a number of years recently in the last 10 to 15 years where we've had a heck of a lot of fresh water coming out of the Mississippi in the spring and summer. Um, uh, and that fresh water creates a layer on top of the, the salt water, which again results in that fresh water ends up warming in the sun in that area, but is still a blocking uh, force from allowing the cool water to come up. And so you end up with uh, hurricanes that last longer as they move towards shore and, and until they get onshore. Um, and it also helps slow them down as well as they're moving toward shore. So we've seen that happen several times in um, the last couple of years where uh, hurricanes have, have reached shore and then, you know, they just sit there. When are they going to come yeah. in? You know, well, like, like Harvey in, uh, in Houston. Exactly. Well, I mean, it seems that um, that's a vicious cycle because there's more water coming out because. Well, that's uh, climate, and yeah, that's, and that's where we're going. Okay. That's exactly where we're going, and that's the third thing. And Harvey is the perfect example of that. Where climate change, uh, the other thing that climate change does, in addition to just the water being warmer because the temperatures are warmer, um, you have warmth in the atmosphere from the surface of the water, um, well up into you know different layers and the result of that is that uh, the the atmosphere that is in the Gulf of Mexico because it is warmer it is able to hold more water mm. more molecules of water which allows storms to grow uh, 
in size, but also to to increase in the amount of rainfall. And the ultimate of that was with Harvey, where yeah. you had 60 inches of rain right. that occurred um, in a storm that you know should not have been a dramatic as dramatic as it was. I mean, it it did not really hit Houston other than the rainfall. Right. And we've seen that with other events. Uh, too. We had 17 inches of rain in some locations during Ida um, and during uh, Katrina as well. What is really interesting is that it is such a strange combination of events that are starting to come together and we're, we're suffering for that. Well, and it's no hurricane is the same. And it's right. because of what you yeah. just said. I mean, so every storm is a little bit different. Right. And, Right, and and there are other complications um, for the National Hurricane Center that it, you know, it's done such a good job that its good job is getting in the way right now. Mm -hmm. um, one of the issues that they're having is that, you know, everybody looks at, at the bubble uh, with the line through it, uh, which shows where the hurricane is going to go. And if you've looked at those over the years, that bubble has narrowed and narrowed and narrowed because that bubble is actually uh, the percent chance of the storm being within, you know, the eye of the storm being within that area, you know, east or west, X, you know, number of, of, of miles. Well, they've narrowed that bubble so much, but the public still looks at that bubble and says, well, that's where the hurricane is and all of the forces of the hurricane without understanding that there are forces of the hurricane that, don't pay attention to where the eye is going. Uh, the first one is storm surge, which is always on the northeast side of the hurricane and can extend out, with Katrina extended out 75 to 100 Jeez. miles. Wow. So, so that's, a, that's a real problem. And then the other thing is rainfall. And rainfall can occur anywhere within uh, the bands of a hurricane, no matter how far out they go. And um, as the hurricane slows, it, when it goes ashore, you end up with more rain. And again, that's not going to be on the coast. Yeah. It's going to be inland and can cause real problems. And those are the key issues that people have to worry about. What we all know is that the coastal marshes along the Gulf of Mexico protect the land inside because they absorb the power of surges. And, um, uh, and we've always known that, but really had no data on it. And after Hurricane Andrew came through, uh, there was a lot of destruction along the coast where, where floating marsh, called Floton Marsh, was pushed back, sort of like, you know, when you wake up in the morning, you've had a fitful night sleeping, and you've pushed all the covers down at the end of the bed, and they're all folded up. Uh, that's the way our marshes looked, and everybody thought that was the end of those marshes. They'll never come back. Well, they did gradually flatten back out and start growing again. But, uh, but uh, Dr. Paul Kemp, uh, an ecologist at LSU, uh, did some studies, and he uh, uh, based on observational uh, uh, issues along the coast, he said that it appeared that for every 2.7 miles of healthy coast, coastal marsh that you have, that it will dampen that surge by one foot. Well, how important is that? Well, it, east of New Orleans, one of, the, one of the places it was really destroyed was, was New Orleans. 
and, it, and it wasn't destroyed because of direct storm hit. That was unfortunately Gulfport that just took 30 some odd feet of surge coming in and just wiped the town out. But what we ha- got in New Orleans was some broken levees and we got uh, uh, water cascading through those openings and that sort of thing. And, and we had about 18 feet of water that hit our levees. Now our levees are 17 feet high. So the levees that were still standing got 18 foot water surges coming in. Why did that happen? It should not have because all of that area between Eastern New Orleans and the Gulf of Mexico, where the storm came across going toward Mississippi, uh, was basically open water because of some mistakes we made a long time ago that we thought were really wise economic decisions to dig channels, one of them called the Mississippi River Gulf Outlet, that allowed shipping to come into Eastern New Orleans. And what happened is it allowed salt water to come in and it destroyed all those marshes, just wiped them out. So when that storm came in, 18 feet of water surged at eastern New Orleans levees. Had that looked like it looked in the 50s and early 60s, it would have been solid marsh, about 50 miles of it. You can do the math. You can figure out, divide 2.7 into 50, and you can figure that if, if that had still been healthy, and if Dr. Kemp's numbers were right, then there would have been about a two-foot surge that hit those 17-foot levees, and we would not have had this, the damage that we had in New Orleans. So it's really important people, you know, policy planners and uh, that sort of thing really need to know some of these figures. Now, would I put my hand on the Bible and say that's absolute fact and that's the way it is? No, most people say, you know, those were rough estimates based on what we could do. And, uh, and so a lot of people don't buy that 2.7 miles. But we still report it because it, it was logical and it was very well studied by a very, very competent ecologist. People have hunkered down. They are doing their best. But they're, I'm telling you, Chuck, uh, the, the difference between a Category 1 storm and a Category five, 4, as far as the wind destruction, over 330 times more powerful. So There's been a lot of changes in the way we alert the public now. Right. That it used to just be, is it a one, two, three, four, or five, and that's it. And uh, but now it's certainly more more complicated than that. Even right. though we still do use those categories. Right. And and Hurricane Katrina uh, really had a a great say in the changes that have occurred since then. Um, the um, uh, the category system um, after Katrina. Uh, the first thing the National Hurricane Center did in terms of changing the categories was to say, from now on, we only talk about it in terms of winds. And the reason for that is because storm surge, they used to have uh, an explanation of what each category was for storm surge. But the storm surge doesn't occur at the same time or in the same place as when, when the, the winds are occurring, that, that the, the eye of the storm and and the center. So that's that's one of the key issues. Um, uh, and, and so they, they've done that. The other thing that, that the National Hurricane Center did in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina was they, they literally um, came up with new warning system for storm surge. So there, if you, you know, if you follow this uh, as a storm is coming in, they will give a main warning for 
what the storm is going to do, the rainfall and its direction and what it's going to cover. And then there will be a separate um, warning, set of warnings for the storm surge. Uh, and one of the one of the the problems for uh, southeast Louisiana is that the National Hurricane Center puts out that storm surge warning, but then the local National Weather Service office here in New Orleans has to adjust that warning to assure that people who live within levee systems understand what it means for them, because it's not not as simplistic as you would think. Cool. Interesting. <laughs> Complexity is always yeah. the word. I know. I know. But, we're, but, but the, the good news is that we're, we're understanding the science much more. We're understanding how these systems work. But we're sort of in a transition period where we're, it, you know, we're sort of still adjusting. Well, there's right. no size fits all also. You know, I mean, all these storms have been a little bit different yeah. based on conditions. Those are variables. That's what science is. I right. mean, that's why it's so frustrating to people who don't necessarily understand science, and we're constantly having to rethink what we know. You have become very attuned to what the National Hurricane Center does and what the scientists are saying, and you've always brought in new information from other fields of science, which has helped people come to grips with what's really happening. So I was actually at the Hurricane Research Division um, at a time when climatologists for the Hurricane Research Division who did not believe in climate change as such uh, were being addressed by uh, Carrie Emanuel, who was one of the key people who has brought climate change into the modern world and into the into hurricane issues um, and and watch them debate this issue and uh, uh, that debate resulted in a joint article that led to the present understanding of the effects of climate change on hurricanes that yeah they um, you know the the season itself uh, is not necessarily changing that much we're gonna see uh, we may actually see fewer hurricanes in the future uh, the problem is that um, individual storms could be more intense by as much as 15% over 100 yeah. years. Um, so you end up with category differences in, in, in strength as we move forward, even though we have fewer storms. New Orleans and Louisiana. That's the way it's forecast right now. Now this could shift a little bit. You look at the cone of uncertainty, could move a little further to the east, could move a little further to the west. We'll watch that. After it makes landfall, we'll start Every New Orleanian who watches the six o'clock news when a storm is in the Gulf knows that they show these spaghetti plots of all these different labs around the world that are making predictions on the path of that hurricane. And then if you listen to them very closely, you'll notice that there's one or two of them that they always point out. They say these are the ones that we rely on the most, mostly the local meteorologist. And so we've just gone a long way in the way we predict these things and the way we understand how they how they move. And that should be helping people think about about evacuating and about property protection and where they decide to build. And all of these issues are kind of coming to a head. That's that's very true. Um, I I like to talk about. Um, uh, 
what we do here, why we live here is, uh, you know, what I call residual risk. Um, uh, we have to recognize that there are forces out there that we aren't used to dealing with uh, in our day-to-day lives, and hurricanes are obviously one of them. But we should be prepared to understand what that means. You know, there's always going to be another big one in our future. It may not occur immediately, but, you know, uh, you know, as I tell people, our, our levee system is designed to, uh, you know, to protect us from a from a tropical storm, a, a hurricane that provides us with a uh, storm surge that has a one percent chance of occurring in any year. Well, that's there's a twenty six percent chance of that occurring within the thirty year life of my mortgage, and that's a bit more <laughs> yeah. to be worrying about. And that's why you should you know recognize that risk and go ahead and get the insurance. So, th- the biggest issue that we'll be facing. Um, the state and the federal government in the future will be how to find the money to do some of these projects, rebuilding wetlands or whatever else is found to reduce the effects of storm surge um, that may not require uh, elevating, you know, levees so that you have walls 40 feet high, things like that, which are potentially possible in the future. Um, they cost money. They cost a lot of money. And Louisiana has learned that one of the benefits uh, from Katrina was getting that big pot of money to do the levy system. But one of the detriments was that it also came with a requirement that every other levy system in the United States had to be reviewed every five years to determine what other needs were done. And so we now have to fight with other areas like Houston, which is looking at a $29 billion uh, flood wall to be built, which will make it very difficult if they get all that money over the next 10 years for Louisiana to come back and look at money for projects that they're doing. Uh, And Sacramento. Sacramento. On the West Coast. They've always been in in trouble. Well, uh, if you went to their levees, you'd know why. I know. Um, they are a bit more sandier than ours mm-hmm. are, right. Uh, right. for sure. And they have houses built on top of them, yeah. too. So what are some misconceptions that, about hurricanes that the general public has? Uh, people need to understand that when public officials tell them to get out, that it, it's, it's There's time. There's a reason for it. They, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, your, your, you know, your house, your belongings are not enough to uh, to bet your life on, yeah. right? Um, and I keep you know I keep going back to uh, you know after, after Katrina we saw what happened with the with the great loss of life for that mm-hmm. when uh, Hurricane Rita came along, um, Kathleen Blanco the the, the governor uh, put out a you know put out a statement as part of her demand that people get out of town which was if you plan on staying in an area where there's a mandatory evacuation, um, we want you to write your, your Social Security number on your arm with a, with a, um, uh, heart, you know, with an um, indelible ink pen so that we can um, wow. know who yeah. the body belongs to when we find All it. All right. Well, let's move on to something a little <laughs> more positive here because we're getting really dark really fast. Let's um, – <laughs> What it's are easy there to any, do. I know. Well, you're right because we're talking about these crazy right. storms. 
Are there any positive benefits of, of hurricanes to the environment or positive, you know, just in general? Well, again, the, you know, the obvious one is the reason that they exist in the first place, which is that they're getting rid of extra energy that is in the atmosphere. Um, and then, Which you can neither create nor destroy, right? right. Is that what I remember from my physics? Right, okay. right. It's going somewhere. <laughs> that energy is, is, is being turned into something else. Okay. So that's basically it. But, the, you know, the, the reality is that there are, there are times when a hurricane or a tropical storm can be good for you. Look at the, the one that uh, just hit um, uh, north, northeast Mexico. Uh, southeast, southeast Texas, uh, southwest Texas, um, uh, it added water in an area where we have drought. Yeah. So that's, you know, that that's a reality. Beyond that, um, uh, no, not that many. Okay. <laughs> not that many things. Well, I, I think one of the main ones is for smaller storms is that they bring in sedimentation from offshore. Right. They rearrange things. They put a lot of water back in, into areas, even though it's a marsh where you have water. But it changes a bit, at least, the salinity. And so there's some shuffling that goes on in there that, that these coastlines have evolved with. I mean, it's been like that for the millennia. And so those are good. But when it becomes a problem is when it's a big storm. And now you've got concrete structures and people and yeah, everything you know, that we've constructed in its exactly, path, and really. we're we're not ready to right. leave those things, as Mark yeah. mentioned a while ago. So right, we we've, we've actually as humans have have changed the way that yeah. nature occurs. Uh, it used to be that the Mississippi River moved uh, right. back and forth across uh, you know the Louisiana coastline, right, and hurricanes were a key part of that process in reworking the sediment at the mouths of the, the, the present and former mouths of the river so that um, you had this great mix of different kinds of habitats um, that created the fisheries that are so yeah, important, so important for to us, us today. Well, thank you, sir. That's been very good, very enlightening. Yeah, we, we appreciate you coming into the studio and talking with us because um, our our podcast is all about nature. And so learning how um, organisms respond to these natural uh, systems, but especially one that is so intense and we're all well attuned to around here. It's interesting to know the background and, um, and just to know about your career and your trajectory. It's very, very interesting. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for your contributions. I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, thank you for joining us to learn more about hurricanes. We hope you are more inspired to get outside and to notice nature before, during, and after storms, being safe, of course. You can find lots more information and details on our website, so don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and write a review if you enjoyed it. Also, find more information and resources for naturalists by following us on our social media and our website at lucec.loyno.edu. This episode was produced by Emma Reed, and our intro music is composed by Hunter Wainwright, a Loyola Popcom graduate. Until next time. Bye. <laughs>